Follow along as I read God's word from the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He first went to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee. In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, this fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come, too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began to bring to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. God bless the reading of his word. Well, as we begin this new year, we're going to begin a, a new series of messages. Uh, over the last several years, probably the eight to ten years, uh, I have been spending a fair amount of time thinking and meditating and studying a portion of Scripture that I think oftentimes has been ignored, even though I think it's probably one of the most important Scriptures uh, that we have. It's the teaching of Jesus, and it is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at that sermon in detail. This morning, what I'd like to do is just do a, 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 a look at it from about 30,000 feet to give you a broad sense of what the Sermon on the Mount is about, kind of put it into context and so forth so that we can uh, then next week, dig into it in a serious way. Also next week, it's kind of interesting that uh, we received word from Con Converge that they had produced a devotional guide uh, and offered it to the churches uh, that are a part of Converge, and it's on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So we have printed some of those. And next week, we'll hand those out so that you can do a devotional each week uh, along with the sermon series. And the, there's 21 in the series, so uh, it'll be an interesting way if you can work together uh, doing some devotional thoughts and reflection as we go through this series. Uh, 
As I said, perhaps this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Perhaps it was not preached as a single sermon. Uh, It wouldn't have lasted too long if these were the only words. It may be a collection by the uh, Matthew, the disciple, of some of the things that Jesus taught uh, over a period of time and was collected and organized the way we find it in his gospel. It also appears in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We will stick primarily with the uh, version of it as we have it in the book of Matthew. Some people have called the Sermon on the Mount the Christian's Constitution. But even if it has been called that, as I say, I think the Sermon on the Mount has been neglected or misunderstood. An example of that is that a survey that was done of evangelical Christians asked the question, who preached the Sermon on the Mount? 14% thought Billy Graham did. So that gives you some sense of you know, the fact that we need to do some work to help people to understand that these are the words of Jesus. Not only is it misunderstood, but has it also been misinterpreted or Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how we approach or how we interpret the the Sermon on the Mount. So before we look at it in a a detailed sense, I think it might be helpful this morning if we take some time just to uh, look at the way in which we approach it. Warren Kissinger uh, wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount, A History of Interpretation. And in his book, he lists at least 33 different ways the Sermon on the Mount has been interpreted. So that gives you some sense of the challenges that are set before us. In order to understand it, I think we first need to back up and take a look at the context, the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to outline the book of Matthew... Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 4, really introduces us to the person of Jesus Christ as uh, as he's presented in in the gospel as the Messiah. I was impressed as David read that the connection between what we talked about on Christmas Eve, about the light that's come into the world, and the prophecy, Matthew says, is fulfilled with the coming of, of Jesus. So in the first four chapters... Jesus is introduced to us. And then from chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through the 16th chapter, verse 20, you have a presentation of Jesus himself uh, and his teaching, his miracles, and his summoning to people to enter into uh, the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of heaven was like and how to enter into it. And then the last part of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, speaks to the fact that Jesus is rejected as the Messiah. He is persecuted, he suffers, he dies, and he rises again. And then he ascends into heaven, but before he ascends into heaven, he gives the great commission that we are to make disciples, teaching people to observe all that he has commanded us. And so there's a connection between teaching all that I've commanded you and what we're going to look at in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus taught, what he commanded, is what we are to teach 
in the contemporary setting. In the text that David read for us this morning, uh, as you come to the end of it, you'll read these words in verses 23 and following, where it says, I'll, I'll back up to verse 22. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom, preaching, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him those who were ill with various diseases and illnesses, and the dispossessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. And a large crowd from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Then you go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he saw these crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began teaching. So the setting is that he has gathered some disciples and he has gathered these disciples now to teach them. So the, the setting is he has been introduced as the Messiah. He's gathered his disciples, and now he is going to instruct them. And it's important that we keep this order in mind. Those who were being taught what is in the, in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount were those who had decided to follow Jesus. They were already committed followers of Jesus. These are the ones to whom he gives the Sermon on the Mount. So, what is the sermon? Let's start by saying what the sermon is not. It is not a new legalism. In chapter 5 of the gospel, after the Beatitudes and after Jesus talks about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he then introduces, he says, you've heard it said long ago. And then he quotes some Old Testament law and he says, but I say to you, and he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So in one way, it is a continuation of what we have in the Old Testament with the law. But in another way, it is something different because it is not a new legalism. And we'll have to explore that as we move forward. Also, it is not a got an agenda for social reform or a social gospel. There are some who think that this applies to everybody and it ought to be the way in which governments are organized to enforce the kind of ethics that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll also discover that there are Christians who think that as Christians, we ought to enforce and impose this on others, kind of developing a theocratic kingdom where we make sure that the secular government lives according to the rules of the Sermon on the Mount. I do not believe that this is what it was intended to be. It is not an interim kingdom ethic or an ethic which is tied to the millennial kingdom. Now, this is an important issue because it's an issue where many have had a discussion about what application does the Sermon on the Mount, have to Christians today. Because it's in the context of Jesus' teaching about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And throughout the book of Matthew, he talks about he's preaching 
the kingdom of heaven. And so some have said, well, this is kingdom teaching then. This is kingdom teaching. And if it's kingdom teaching, it refers to the kingdom. Where is the kingdom? The kingdom comes, the millennial kingdom comes at the end of the end of the age. And so the scenario is that Jesus came as the king of kings to offer the kingdom to the Jewish people. And through the first part of the book of Matthew, he's expressing that, offering it to the, uh, to the Jews. They reject it. And so uh, it will then apply when Jesus comes back and the, at the millennial kingdom. So what we have is millennial kingdom ethics. We have to understand the nature of kingdom, I think, to see how this fits. The concept of the kingdom. The kingdom really is three, uh, can be seen from three different perspectives. One, Jesus, as king, rules over all of history. He is in charge of anything and everything that happens. There are no events that happen which are outside of his control. So he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And his will and his purposes are being worked out in this, in this world. So in that sense, he rules. But there's a second li limit, a limited sense, which is confined to those people who will submit to his rule or to his reign. There are people who would rebel against Jesus' rule in their life. Uh, and so he doesn't fully rule. Only those who submit and allow him to be the king of, and lord of their life are experiencing that. And then third, there comes a time in which he will rule and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and that every kingdom, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and he will reign forever and ever. And so how do we put the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount into that kind of a context? I think a good illustration is what happened in World War II. In World War II, the Germans invaded France and took over France and set up a government. They ruled France for a period of time. But there was a fairly large number of people in the country of France, in the geographic area called France, that was being ruled by Germany, who said, we do not recognize the German government as a legitimate government. They do not rule us. We still have allegiance to French government. And so while you had the Germans taking over a territory and ruling over a geographic area, there were people in that area who said, no, no, no. Our allegiance is to the French government. And so as you think about kingdom today, we live in a world which is ruled, and this is what happened in Matthew chapter uh, one through four, where Jesus is tempted by Satan. You remember Satan says, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus didn't say to him, well, wait a minute, you don't, you, don't, you don't rule there. He acknowledged that this world is ruled by someone alien. But he is offering to come and to say to those who will respond to him as their Lord and their leader and the king and ruler of their life, I will give you 
a whole different experience in terms of your allegiance to me. And so he is saying, you are invited into the kingdom. And as Jesus invited his disciples, they responded to him and said, we will allow you to be the Lord and leader of our life and we will follow you. And Jesus said, all right, if, you, if that's the case, then as you follow me, here's some instructions. And that's what happens when you get to the Sermon on the Mount. So what is, what is it if it's not, uh, let's do one other thing. It's not an impractical or unrealistic ideal. There's some people who say, wait, there's no way that we can accomplish this. I think as we go through this series, you'll begin to understand how it is possible for this to be realistic and to be something which is not impractical. In fact, as you get to the end of the chapter, if you flip in your Bible back to the end of the sermon, and Jesus tells this great story about the man who built his house on the sand, and the winds and the rains came and it destroyed it. And then he built his, another guy built his house on the rock, and it stood. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, as you listen to my sermons, we get to the end, here's the culmination. You want a life that's going to stand against the difficulties and the hardship of time? It's based on this, the solid rock of what I'm offering you in this and the life that lasts, the life that is productive is the life that is built upon the solid rock of what Jesus offers during the Sermon on the Mount. And so, what is the Sermon on the Mount? First, Who's it for? It's for those who have submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ. And so it's not a, a source of life, but it is a, 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 a manual or a course for life. And we'll explain that as we, as we move forward. The conclusion of the sermon gives us its purpose. A life that is rock solid amidst the storms of life. And so we look then at a, at a summary of the, of the sermon. We're just going to go very quickly over a kind of an overview to give you a sense of where, where we'll go in the, in the coming days. John's, uh, there, you can summarize it very easily with just looking at the five, three chapters. Chapter 5 describes for us the character of Jesus' followers. What are they like? How do they get there? Chapter 6, he begins to talk about the piety or the trust or the faith of Jesus' followers. What are their commitments? Chapter 7, the commitments of the followers of Jesus, uh, especially in terms of relationships and who they follow. Uh, these are the, the, the summary of, of chapter 5, 6, and 7. Both John Stott and Dallas Willard de define and describe and outline the Sermon on the Mount with uh, seven key points. First of all, the first one is the character of the followers of Jesus in chapters 5, verses 2 through 12. Begins with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes set the tone for the entire Sermon on the Mount. We get the 
understanding of the Beatitudes correct, I think then the rest of it all begins to unfold and make sense. But if we misunderstand and misinterpret this, the Beatitudes, it takes us down wrong roads. So we'll take a couple of sermons to look at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not laws or requirements. They simply describe those who have put themselves in the place where they can receive God's favor, His grace, and His blessing. And so we'll look at it from that perspective. The first four Beatitudes reflect the heart of Jesus' followers, their inner attitude, their receptivity. It talks about repentance. If you want to look at it, basically, the Sermon on the Mount Beatitudes are a nice step-by-step description of what we call conversion. And we'll see how that plays out as we look at it. The first four, looking at it from perspective of our relationship with God, the last four, reflecting the outward flow of the life that Christ puts within us and the inward transformation that takes place. And as a result of what Jesus does for us, in us, the next section talks about the salt and the light, the influence of Jesus' followers. He doesn't say, I want you to be salt. I want you to be light. There's no command there. It's simply a statement of fact. You are salt. You are light. Well, how does that come about? We have to understand the, the series of Beatitudes to get to that point. Then in chapter 5, verse 17... Through verse 48, there are key words of Jesus' definition of the law's purpose and its place in verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. The law is never a source of righteousness. You never become righteous by keeping the law. That's the message not only of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the message of the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament. The law is never a source of righteousness, but it's the course of righteousness. If we are righteous, we begin to follow a certain pattern. And that pattern is laid out for us by the Sermon on the Mount. Then Jesus takes six specific examples in verses 18 through 48. And how he sees the perspective of the law. First, he talks about anger. Verses 18 through 26. Anger gets turned into reconciliation. Adultery, verses 27 through 30, gets turned into moral purity. Unfaithfulness, verses 31 and 32, gets turned into faithfulness. Verses 33 through 37, untruthfulness is turned into honesty. Revenge, verses 38 to 42, gets turned into tenderness. And hate, in verses 43 through 48, gets turned into love. And he takes these six examples from the Old Testament law and he explains how they are to be seen and how they operate in our day. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus now addresses three disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, three disciplines in terms of followers and how we uh, live out our, our faith. First in giving, Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, when you give, don't trumpet it. Do it quietly in the background. 
verses six through five, uh, chapter six, verses five through fifteen, he looks at prayer and how we are to pray, and the famous Lord's Prayer is a part of that. And then verses six through eighteen of chapter six, he deals with another one of those spiritual disciplines of fasting. And he takes each of those three spiritual disciplines and he explains how they are to operate within our within our life. Then verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, 34, he summarizes how as followers of Jesus, we have such confidence and such trust in him that we just turn our lives over to him. And there's several ways and, and areas that, where we do that. First of all, with, with our tre- treasures, verses 19 through 21. And then verses 23 to 24, he talks about if your eye is single, he's talking about vision. What you, what you visualize, what, what, is your, what is your vision? And how that it, it can be impacted by our dependence upon Jesus. And then verses 25 through 34, which is the ones that impact me the hardest in terms of worry. Don't worry. You got to have total trust and dependence on the Lord. That's where he, where he really begins to challenge us. Verse chapter 7 Verses 1 through 12, he begins to talk about how our relationships are impacted by our relationship with Jesus. How we relate to others. Are we judgmental? Or are we not? Do we have confidence in God's care? And then finally, the, the golden rule. Do it to others as you would have them do to you. The last section the commitment of Jesus' followers. He talks about the narrow path, and he warns about false teachers, and he warns about simply making a profession. And then the last kind of his application and his challenge is the difference between building our lives on the sand and building our lives on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's a quick and dirty summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we will begin in earnest looking at it step by step, and you'll begin to see how it, uh, how it unfolds. I trust that over the 10 weeks, it'll just stimulate us in our walk with the Lord, and we will begin to see how the Lord really is calling us to live. Uh, someone has said, you know, our... our Commitment, the, the church these days is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I'm trusting that as we spend time in the Sermon on the Mount, that it will deepen us in our vitality, in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we spend time in it this next session season of the the life of the body here at grace point that you would speak to us through your word by your spirit that you would draw us into a more intimate relationship with you that we would reflect the character of our lord jesus christ thank you father for your word and we pray that you'd guide us in the coming days and now, Father, as we take some time this morning to gather around the table of the Lord, 
and to remember your sacrifice for our sins. We pray that you would just give us some time this morning to draw near to you and to say thank you for what you have done on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen.